Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editors Kathy Kelly and Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September, September 1st, 2023. We're going to start with by far the biggest story of the week, the long-anticipated release of Medicare's first list of drugs that will be subject to price negotiation. Kathy, you're our expert on this subject. We and many others spent a lot of time previewing which drugs would make it. What did we learn from the first list of 10, or I guess I should say maybe 11 drugs? Right. Um, <laughs> a couple of things uh, we learned, and that that was a, um, a real uh, educational experience, I think, for, for many of us. But, you know, one thing was the importance of having current data Um you know, a lot of the predictions um, for which drugs were going to be in the list were based on data that was a little older. What CMS has released publicly is from 2021, and they were using data from like mid-22 to mid-23. And it did make a difference. You know, there were some drugs that kind of rose on the list and displaced some others. Um, so that, you know, that affected um, the predictions. And the other was um, an understanding of the biosimilar delay. That's the provision in the law that allows um, some drugs to be exempt from selection if a biosimilar is pending. And you know, many people didn't, you know, maybe realize that that uh, delay was only available to drugs from 12 to 16 years old, essentially since approval. Uh, that meant a couple of drugs that people had discounted, um, like Stellara and Novolog, um, did make the list. So, so those were two sort of big things, I would say. You know, just to go back quickly for those of our listeners who who didn't see the list, um, mm -hmm. the, the it was the usual. We, we think we we in our preview we had I think eight. Do we have eight or seven or eight of them? I think so. Much, yeah, something like that. And then Stellara yeah. and Novolog were. The the one two of the ones that we didn't really expect right. to to see, right? But it was the, the heavy hitters were the other mm -hmm. ones. That's right. So Eliquis, Jardian, Sorelto, Genuvia, Farjiga, and Tresto, and Imbrubica, Stellara, and uh, Novolog, and and a related insulin called Fiasp that Novo um, markets. So yeah, Stellara and Novolog displaced two cancer drugs that had been on a lot of people's list. Extandi and Ibrams, um, and that had to do with um, uh, spending figures. Um, you know the difference between the older and the more current spending figures. That's interesting because I think a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this, the list coming out, we talked about you know like could you, you know, di could you like on purpose try and reduce, you know the spend if you were the sponsor to see if you could knock yourself down to like number 11 or something. And, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's interesting how we're seeing this kind of, you know, fluctuate. It'll, it'll be, it'll be, I think it'll be interesting if we see some more, you know, as we go forward, kind of, if the, if this, the, you know, these kind of fluctuations, like if some come off and then they all of a sudden see a, a jump in use again, and then they jump back up into the list or, you know, if anything like that happens. In the future, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And in some cases, you know, there there was also talk about how some of these, some of the candidates on the list, which by the way is not, um, it can't be uh, challenged 
uh, either administratively or in the courts. That's under the law. Um, so this is the list. <laughs> I mean, of course, we have these all these lawsuits pending, but um, you know this this list won't be changed going forward. But um, if things do uh, face generic or biosimilar competition, CMS has kind of laid out a schedule for what happens. Like for example, I think a number of the um, candidates on the list may have competition in 2025. And if that's the case, the negotiated price would apply in 26, but not in 27. That was um, according to a schedule they laid out in their guidance. So, um, you know, the the impact could be, I guess you would say relatively short-lived, but by then, they would be facing competition anyway, so presumably the price would go way down. Yeah, Kathy, the uh, um, various aspects of the uh, the law will obviously play out over the next uh, few years. But one of the things I was struck uh, by, uh, you know, as you mentioned, sort of the um, you know, sort of the the biosimilar uh, uh, delay uh, um, mm -hmm. exemption, and then this uh, question of uh, the small biotech uh, um, exemption uh, too that. Uh, um, right. You're doing a story on uh, today that I didn't realize mm -hmm. was uh, also kind of uh, uh, short-lived in a sense. It's kind of it's not a uh, an ongoing thing, but just for the next uh, few years yeah. uh, um, that uh, folks right. apply for that. Yeah, that's right. That was um, one of there. There are a couple of things in the law that I think are meant to sort of um, allow companies some way to ease into this program, and that the um, the small biotech exception is one it does it would apply only in 26 27 and 28 um, the other thing in the law is that you know there are three minimum discounts um, under the law 25 percent for drugs that are 9 to 12 years old 35 percent for drugs that are 12 to six, up to 16 and then 60 percent for for older drugs ones that are 16 years and older but for the first four years the drugs um, from age nine to through 15 will only be subject to the 25% minimum dis discount. And that 35% doesn't kick in until 2030. <laughs> so that's that's sort of another example of, I guess, you know, where the framers tried to maybe ease the transition a little bit. Kathy, I know one of the things you talked about in, in um, one of the things I heard too was kind of the the lack of transparency. At least a, a few people had had kind of mentioned that um, mm -hmm. because you know a, a lot of people you know and you know I still remember this from like seventh grade math. Um, you know, wanted to see CMS show their work. Um, yeah, and you know, kind of whether it was you know just a description of how they got to the ten or, you know, however, 10 or 11, however, however you want to count it, um, mm -hmm. drugs. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess, you know, I mean, I don't know if it, if it makes, if it would make people feel better or if it would just be like kind of a, a way to figure out, you know, at least the thinking behind, you know, how some got on and, how, and some didn't get on. But, you know, mm -hmm. it, it seems like that, you know, maybe, you know, at some point we're going to need to see some, you know, some of the actual figuring here. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. Although CMS did repeat several times in the press call they held when they announced the list that they followed the steps 
in the law and in their guidance. And I've heard other policy people say that too. And I, so I think, you know, in that sense, there is a, some transparency. It's just that there were so many steps and there were like, <laughs> there were so many moving parts that it was, you know, it was hard for people to really put it all together. And, um, you know, but, but still they may, they may publish some kind of a, you know, an explanation there. They haven't indicated that they will. Um, the one thing they've talked about sort of giving justification for are the prices that they ultimately, you know, set, I guess you would say. Um, and that will come a few months after those prices are published. But um, but we'll see. They, you know, they may provide further explanation on the list at some point. I guess there's like a couple of things, obviously, this is an unusual law in many ways and how prescriptive Congress was and how it had, you know, this process has to be done. But there are definitely some things where CMS had discretion that I think you guys wrote about um, where we still don't quite know how they made their decisions. Um, you know, one thing is, you know, how they're how they're looking at what bona fide generic marketing meant. I was surprised to, to read in one of your articles that some folks, I think, it, were thinking that um, Humera could have possibly been on this list be because yeah. of whether CMS really considered the biosimilar marketing there to be bona fide generic marketing. So I'm particularly yeah. would be interested in like, was there a backroom discussion at CMS about, you know, whether the extent of Humira biosimilar uptake disqualified that drug and why? Um, right. And then the other thing, you know, Derek sort of alluded to this too, and you had an interesting quote from Scott Gottlieb about like just like the way they lumped together the Novo Nordisk insulin products and whether that really sort of complied with how CMS said they were going to handle products yeah. with, you know, the same active ingredient and so forth. So, I, I mean, it definitely seems like there are things that companies would want to know and maybe the public would want to know more broadly about how they pick some of these. I guess the flip side I never know with industry is where they would appreciate more transparency because it would help them and also where they would rather some of this paint some of this data and information may be be proprietary because um on certain levels some of it being public might hurt them in other ways <laughs> mm -hmm. it's true well those are those are really good points and i know i was so surprised to hear that some people actually thought humira could be on the list <laughs> that even came up during the press call um uh, that that was held on the list and i I was really confused by the question, but you know, then I spoke to somebody else who said um, that they were watching Humira, Lantus, and Revlimid. They thought those three were, you know, could potentially end up on the list if CMS decided there wasn't bona fide marketing. So, you know, in the end, they didn't. But it, it, it's true there. There's not a clear sort of framework there that that's obvious to people as to how CMS made that decision. Yeah, I know that was a complaint that I heard just asking questions like, you know, how can you have, you know, does does having a patent settlement in place to launch in before, you know, these prices would take effect count as bona fide mm -hmm. marketing? And they're like, well, we don't know. Because yeah. it, the, the the definition in the all the CMS guidance is kind of vague. It's like it's almost like a you know, well, we'll know it when we see it kind of thing. And yeah, um, you know, it, yeah, I think that that's something that people are going to watch really closely, especially you know, with with 
drugs like Stellara and and Novolog because they're going to come off, you know, theoretically come off the list, you know, up here pretty soon. And, you know, is that going to be because of bona fide marketing? Is it be, going to be because of something else, you know, some other reason or something like that? Yeah, yeah. well, you know, it's hard. I, I'm not sure they're going to come off the list, um, but they may only have um, negotiated prices for the first year if if they have, you know, if the competition um, uh, comes out in 25. So I don't know. You know, we'll we'll, we'll see how that that works. <laughs> I guess two things I was thinking. One is like what Derek said, the, the definition of, bon- of bona fide generic marketing is a little bit flexible. <laughs> and, that, you know, yeah. I saw um, CMS's <laughs> Mina Shemisi speak at an event maybe a month or two ago now where she pretty much said, you know, and I wrote a story about that, that it's going to be kind of product specific. And it, it does seem like they want to have leave themselves flexibility <laughs> to do it on yeah. a case by case basis. I guess the other thing I'm wondering about is there's so much so many of the issues we're focused on right now for the first few years of this process. How many of them are issues that in the long term, assuming the law lasts, <laughs> um, won't <laughs> matter once we're actually dealing with newer drugs, right, in the sense that Medicare has, you know, we won't have this sort of backlog of drugs that have been on the market a lot longer and are closer to generic competition and patent expiry when they're actually able to pick from drugs that have, you know, just sort of come into qualifying because they're just at nine years of, you know, marketing and so forth where they probably aren't as close to dealing with some of these issues like generic competition. I think that's true. And the other thing, that bona fide marketing uh, issue came out in the guidance. That's something that CMS sort of layered on top of what the law said. And the law talked about, um, you know, if a generic is approved and marketed, which, you know, seemed more sort of clear cut. And, you know, CMS sort of made it fuzzier with their bona fide marketing um, discussion. But the other thing to keep in mind is that that guidance is only for the first year. It's only for 26. So they are going to be releasing additional guidance for 27 and and thereafter. And who knows, maybe they'll rethink that or maybe they'll define it better. Um, I guess we'll see. And of course, we can't, you know, and you got you all have alluded to it here in the discussion, but the the legal issues remain in place you know, I, I, I don't, you know, and and Matt, you even wrote this week that there could be additional people suing now that they've seen themselves on the list. So um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't know if we, you know, I mean, I don't know if you all have a sense. I mean, you know, I hate to ask you to predict something, but I mean, are do you think we'll actually get, you know, through kind of like, you know, this fall with the listening session stage and, and, you know, kind of, you know, towards the, where they're actually quote negotiating, whatever you, however you want to characterize that. From what I've heard, people are expecting that the process will, will go through and even that, you know, we might get to 26 when the prices actually go into effect, but, but we don't know. That's, that's, I think if it does go to the Supreme court, some of this, uh, some of these cases. Yeah, it in a in a sense it does uh, I think uh, really depend on the Supreme Court and uh, the story I did this week was we're talking more about uh, you know at that juncture it's not so much you're kind of you know what the technicalities of the uh, the law or the implementation even uh, might be but through kind of 
you know, it's a, uh, a a philosophical approach to sort of kind of how uh, how the justices interpret the Constitution and uh, um, what they feel is sort of be the best uh, thing to do at that uh, at that time. And sort of kind of when it reaches is is a uh, you know a little bit of an open question. It seems like uh, there are various uh, tracks that uh, um, different lawsuits are taking. Uh, uh, Bristol and uh, Jansen seem content to sort of kind of argue about sort of kind of the uh, the higher level principles, basically for making a constitutional challenge. Uh, AstraZeneca, who you know sued very shortly before the uh, list came out, and uh, um, you know was something of a surprise uh, um, entrant on the uh, on the list once it did. They're sort of kind of making a more uh, administrative argument, talking about this sort of bona fide uh, uh, interpretation, talking about uh, um, you know sort of kind of what uh, um, CMS is thinking about orphan drugs, and so they're they're not so much sort of talking about the Constitution, but sort of kind of more about. Uh, the implementation so there are various sort of kind of uh um uh different tr approaches there so it uh, um it can go a variety of different ways but uh, as kathy was saying i think it'll be a little while and uh this will keep uh chugging along i mean 20 uh uh 26 seems a, a ways away but uh, as you noted uh derek uh you know it's we're kind of uh uh the the sprint is on uh you know i think uh, firms have to uh get back to uh um cms by the beginning of october and then uh the public listing sessions to help her kind of set the uh, pricing benchmarks or will take place uh, um, this fall as well. So there's a lot going on that will sort of kind of keep uh, keep moving along, uh, even as these lawsuits uh, kind of hum in the background. And, uh, you know, those will be more episodic. They'll be sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, perhaps a uh, a hearing at uh, at some point in these uh, various cases and sort of kind of the, uh, the filings back and forth. But uh, um, that drama is going to sort of play out uh, mostly in the uh, um, the minds of the uh, the judges who are going to uh, and their clerks who are going to kind of write those decisions while uh, um, all this more public facing stuff uh, um, happens. Kathy, this this kind of harkens back to sort of the be the beginning of the whole discussion. Um, give me give me another prediction. Are are the are the prices that get negotiated going to be significantly different than they are right now? That is a good question. It's that is hard to predict because most of the most of the selected drugs have a minimum of twenty five percent discount for the for the reason I just mentioned. There are only I think two, but there might be three that would qualify for that sixty percent um, minimum discount. And and they are mostly heavily rebated drugs already. So it is possible that. Um, you know, a lot of the drugs are currently have net prices to Medicare that are lower than a 25% discount off list right now. So, so the, you know, how much lower is CMS going to want to go? That's that is a good question. I've heard arguments on both sides. One that they will try to push prices below the current net prices to score political points. You know, the um, the list of prices is scheduled to be published. Um, September 1st, 2024, which is a month before the presidential election. And we know that, that Biden is making this a, um, you know, a, a factor in his uh, campaign. And it, it's an important, he sees it as a, an important achievement for his administration. On the other hand, um, you know, there's there's a sense that, that CMS may try to be somewhat reasonable. <laughs> Um, you know, and not go a lot below the current sort of rebated prices, um, especially with all these lawsuits going on. So I think it's that's a really tough call. I would think they'd want to maybe 
show some, um, you know, some, you know, discount below what current night, uh, net prices are, but I don't see them really going that much lower. Well, I guess there's a benefit, I suppose, to CMS, even if the price isn't that much lower than the currently rewrited prices of these being more like list lower of the price being right. of it being done a different way than the current rebate system. But I think like that's very hard to explain to the public. It so is. I guess I'd be like, yes. I'd, I'd wonder, right, how well they do some some from a sort of public sentiment and even maybe from a legal case, if they can't show that they're able to do something that is sort of different than what's going on in the private sector, right? Why go through yeah. this process? Right. Um, and, and I think for a lot of the mainstream public, right, <laughs> trying to get into the nitty gritty of the rebate system won't yeah. really help be that helpful for them. So I feel like, I don't know, I would think there's there has to be significant pressure on them to be able to show something beyond what the PBMs can get now. Yeah. yeah, I just, I just, I just foresee this nightmare scenario where some of them, some of them come out and it's basically the rebated price. Everyone's saying like, why did we do this? You just, I got the same price that I'm getting now. Yeah, <laughs> boy, right. was this, is- boy, was this a waste of time? And people, you know, won't ever understand. No, I'm cutting out that whole part where we have to get them to discount the price, and you know, now we're just, this is where we're starting from instead of starting from a really high price and then pushing it down through all the the rebates and everything else. You know, it's also uh, worth kind of remembering that this, the discount, um, or not the discount, the negotiation program is helping to pay for some of the redesign benefits like that $2,000 cap. And so there could also be a consideration on CMS's part that they need to register, you know, greater savings for Medicare than they're getting now in order to help pay for that that benefit. So there's that too. Yeah, well, looks like the pharma world can finally take a breath now that we know who's going to be negotiating. Um, I guess we'll have to see what happens in the in the coming months. Um, but uh, thanks, Kathy. This has been a really, really yeah. interesting uh, conversation over the last few days, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Next, we're going. Next, we're going to look at yet another appeal for a product withdrawal. Sue, the withdrawal process for the FDA or the withdrawal process that the FDA initiated for oncopeptides Papaxto is ramping up. What have we learned about that one? Yeah. So uh, the Center for Drugs formally requested withdrawal in July, based on what they say is an a detriment in overall survival in the ocean confirmatory study and a failure to meet the primary or the progression-free survival endpoint in that study and an unfavorable benefit risk profile. And Oncopeptides is fighting this. They have appealed. And this appeal is now, unlike with the Avastin and the McKenna situations, this appeal of an accelerated approval withdrawal is now proceeding under the new expedited withdrawal procedures, which were established by the year-end omnibus uh, legislation that was enacted late in 2022. And these are supposed to be streamlining the process. Um, So Oncopeptides has filed a written appeal They've requested a meeting with the commissioner or his designee. 
the um, agency has filed a public notice of um, notice of the proposed withdrawal and is seeking public comments on this. And Commissioner Rob Califf has asked Center for Biologics Director Peter Marks to be his designee in this action. And Marks will be the one who will be making the final decision on withdrawal. The uh, main thing that we're seeing that is different here with the expedited procedures is that Papaxto will not get a public hearing in front of an advisory committee. Um, the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee already considered this issue back in September 2022 and said that Paxto's benefit risk profile was unfavorable and that it should be withdrawn. So under this new procedure in the omnibus, you don't get a second bite at that apple <laughs> if you've already if the already if the issue has already gone to an advisory committee on the question of withdrawal. Yes, yeah, so I guess if uh, if Peter Marks was expecting a little downtime, maybe or some normal hours <laughs> after the pandemic, he's not getting it. That's um, what I was yeah. wondering. Why in the world you would pick this guy who's been so busy for the past few years and has clearly stated he's had things. He's a play, he has plenty of other things to keep him busy that he hasn't been able to work <laughs> on because of COVID, like gene selling gene therapy and stuff. Just, just yeah. surprised. It's not me. like there's not much going on in that field, is there? <laughs> but again, are you going to make Celia Witten, the, the deputy director, manage two of these in two years? I mean, that, that doesn't seem exactly. fair either. <laughs> I mean, each, for each of these three cases now, Avastin, McKenna, and Papaxto, the commissioner's office has asked the leadership for the Center for Biologics to sort of be their designee in this, in terms of either being a hearing officer in the case of Avastin and McKenna, or in this case, to actually be deciding the issue in terms of Papaxto and whether or not to withdraw. So they, it's just sort of this de facto route now <laughs> to CBER whenever CEDAR is proposing an accelerated approval withdrawal and the sponsor is objecting. And you really feel, I, I really feel sorry for the leadership of CBER because, you know, <laughs> nobody needs this work, right? <laughs> yeah, but he's got a, you know, you, you wrote to that he's got a committee of people to help him. So, um, yes. And I'm assuming there's a whole bunch of lawyers that aren't on that list that are going to be doing a lot of the lift, heavy lifting, at least yes. to helping them. Yeah. And some of the people on that list have experience in the Avastin withdrawal hearing and in the McKenna withdrawal. So these are not people who are who are kind of new to the subject, um, mm -hmm. although, the, the, again, the procedures are different this time around. I have to say I'm I'm slightly disappointed. As much as I perhaps policy-wise, it's good for the FDA. It's like a, it's a little disappointing we don't get to have our big theatrical um, <laughs> hearing moment. I think from a coverage perspective. Well, we already had Sue, it. Sue probably had disagrees. It. <laughs> Sue probably disagrees, but you know sometimes. <laughs> Well, it is interesting that even with this, uh, you know, skipping the, the next advisory committee, that they may not be that much or even any faster than the, the Avastin uh, uh, breast cancer indication withdrawal. So you, you would sort of put out a timeline showing that sort of kind of uh, because they took so long from the advisory committee to actually uh, formally request this, uh, you know, perhaps they were waiting for the, the more uh, exploited mechanism or, uh, or something else. Maybe there were, there were COVID distractions or what have you. But, uh, you know, the 
it's not going to it may not be the fastest one even though it's on on this much faster uh, faster track uh, when compared to uh, um compared to Avacin. Right. So Peter Marks would have to make a decision on whether or not to withdraw before January for it to be faster than Avastin. He will no doubt beat the speed of McKenna because McKenna took years. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so I, I think it'll be interesting to see kind of how this whole process plays out and, and how long it takes. Is the unique thing here that this company had voluntarily sort of stopped marketing the drug? So like, or am I misunderstanding something no, they, I read? They so had. They, they so it stopped makes marketing it, a, it. Right. They stopped marketing it in October, at which time they said they would withdraw. In October 2021, at which time they said they would withdraw. And then they reversed that decision in January 2022. So the drug has not been marketed since October 2021. So that may be part of the reason for why this has not moved faster from Cedar's point of view, because there's no kind of imminent public health issue in terms of people in this country getting the drug, right? It, it's just not being sold in this country. Right, um, so that's why I feel like it's a little unfair to compare it to um, the Avastin timeline to right. some extent. <laughs> Right. So no, that's that it's a, it's a good point. point. Is there's, well no, taken. there's no urgency in the sense that we're kind of you know risk the public in the in that sense. Right. But it's I more than it's, an this is more than an administrative type of deal. I mean, because theoretically they could just start selling it again if yes, they wanted they could. to. Yeah. There is. So I, I mean, I don't see anything that could stop them legally from, stop from selling the drug unless FDA were to slap some sort of import ban or or something like that. But yes, they still hold an NDA approval. So that has not changed. Also, can you explain the oncopeptides defense? I, 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 they're, <laughs> so they're saying the, you, can't, you can't withdraw the drug because the comparator in the confirmatory trial had some kind of problem? Yes. I, I, I was a little confused. <laughs> yes, it's, it's an interesting defense. Um, it's unique among these three products that have in which withdrawal has been opposed. Um, the comparator was a drug called pomalidomide, and that is an immunomodulatory um, drug, an IMID, it's known as. And the company's argument is that they have gone back and looked at all of these IMID trials and discovered that IMIDs, when used in elderly multiple myeloma patients, are detrimental. Consequently, they're saying that the overall survival data in Ocean are difficult to interpret because of this age-related effect of the IMIDs. And so basically, they want, they're positioning um, Papaxto as having a role in this elderly multiple myeloma population where they assert that IMIDs are ha hazardous. And that is essentially the crux of their argument. So it's just sort of an interesting defense of their own product in that they're laying shame <laughs> to the comparator group of products. Um, you just We just have not seen that in any of these accelerated approval withdrawals. And I just really question how much traction that argument is 
going to get with Peter Marks and his team because I think Peter Marks is going to be solely focused on have they confirmed clinical benefit in the approved indication? Um, what is the benefit risk profile in the approved indication? And generally, have they met the requirements for withdrawal of their accelerated approval? So, I mean, it seems to me that this argument around IMIDs, if it's important from a clinical practice perspective, perhaps another way of bringing that through would have been through a citizen petition, as opposed to making it the, the defense to keep the Papaxto NDA on the market. Yeah, Sue, you had a great quote in your story that uh, you know, they said, like, the sponsors always say that it's the comparator's fault when there's a problem with the trial, but this time it's real. You know, they, sort of, yes. they kind of acknowledge this sort of the, uh, the somewhat uh, um, uh, absurd situation they find themselves in. It also seems like there is a, a couple lines where basically FDA is saying, like, we, we sort of see what you found there. This is great, but this is hypothesis generating, right? Exactly. Anytime right. FDA uses those words, you sort of, you kind of know what they're thinking there, which is like, you know, okay, fine. This is, might be a potential, you know, hypothesis, but go, but you have to prove it. And the company has also clearly kind of said like, we're not going to try and do more work to do this unless you let us stay on the market. And that's, you know, kind of a little bit of what happened with McKenna, where they tried to say like, oh, but it, it we think it might may work in this, these or that situations. And FDA was, you know, I, I don't think that argument is going to work with FDA unless the company really has this, a strong enough data to show that. So to me, those were kind of like one of the key phrases that says, OK, FDA is not behind their argument here. Right. No, I I agree with your interpretation, Sarah. So again, another interesting ongoing story that's going to keep us all busy for a while. At least it'll keep Sue busy because she looks at the dockets like every day. So, um, but it may only last a couple of months. We don't know. We have well, to see how fast the expedited withdrawal procedures work. <laughs> that 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 was my next question. If if they finish this quickly you know, in quotes, compared to, say, you know, Avastin and certainly McKenna, anything is quicker than McKenna was um, just about. I mean, does the agency become more emboldened to, to do this if, you know, obviously if the evidence warrants that, you know, I mean, because, I mean, I, I know we've heard this before that, you know, they were really kind of cagey about initiating withdrawal because of the 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 workload and the time it takes and and everything else that's involved with it i do think you might see a faster turnaround in the interval from say an advisory committee voting against a drug saying this should come off the market and cedar actually making a formal proposal to take it off the market in this case that interval was almost 10 months now because the advisory committee was in september 2022 now, oncopeptides had announced in December, yes, the agent, uh, Cedar, asked us to take it off the market. We're considering. But then there was no <laughs> formal announcement, no federal register notice of proposed withdrawal, nothing until, um, nothing formal, actually, until August. Onc and oncopeptides had announced earlier in the month that, yes, they'd been asked to take it off the market. Oh, I, actually, the formal 
request for them to take it off the market was in July. But still, you know, that's a long interval. Now, maybe they were waiting for these new accelerated approval withdrawal procedures to find their way into legislation in the omnibus and and that happened at the end of the year but uh, i don't know what happened between say january and june where you know no no formal decision or no formal proposal was made i'm not sure why there was that lag of time i don't know if they maybe took this to the medical policy council i have no idea yeah i'm wondering um, but if i they think had... you're i think you're going to see that interval shortened going forward I'm wondering if they needed, you know, a few months just to kind of work out the internal policy to implement the legislation. I mean, we see that happen all the time, you know, especially with like Padufa, where there's a million things in there. It takes them months and months just to get, you know, to kind of get a handle on what's in the legislation, how it affects them and what they need to do sort of to, you know, to change you know, the, how they need, what they need to change to, you know, to make, to put the legislation into practice. So, you know, I don't know. I'm wondering if that's, you know, that was kind of the the case. And now that they've have it, now that they kind of know internally how they should, you know, approach this, that, yeah, like you said, maybe, it, maybe it comes quicker. Maybe they have the, you know, going into the advisory committee, one of the things they do is write the withdrawal proposal. So it's ready. And then, you know, after the vote, if they get the vote they want, then it goes forward. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point, Derek, about them possibly needing time to kind of work out what the legislation said and what they need to do and how to proceed with this. Under that legislation, they are supposed to issue draft guidance on this withdrawal process, but that draft guidance is not due, I believe, until June 2024. So, you know, I think we can assume that sort of this, the, the steps they've taken and how they've implemented this so far will probably <laughs> find itself in that draft guidance. But, yeah, they were starting from scratch here um, in terms of how to how to move through this process. Maybe that this is probably informing how they're writing the guidance, too. Exactly. You know, right. Yeah. Well, great. Another another great discussion. That's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 